Good morning, Watermark. How are we doing? Hey, what a great time to be together. My name is David Leventhal, and uh, for those of you who don't know me, I get a chance to serve on the elder team with Dean and Todd and um, Brian and, and, uh, and Bo Fournette, and it's a joy to get to be here with you. Now, uh, last night, my wife and I, we came to the four o'clock service, and we got to hear from uh, my faithful brother, my co-labor in the Lord, John Elmore, as he uh, expounded, did a really great job teaching on uh, Matthew, some verses in Matthew 5. And then John got sick. Real, real sick. And so about uh, 7.30 this morning, I got a call. <laughs> and so here we are. And so that means uh, we should pray. <laughs> so I'm gonna pray for y'all. Maybe while I'm praying, y'all could be praying for me and we'll get this horse out of the barn. <laughs> Heavenly Father, um, it, is, it is a joy to get to be with your people this morning. Father, thank you that as the sun came up in the east this morning, we were reminded that your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I pray for our next little bit of time together as we unpack your word, your God-breathed, inspired, timeless word that you would use it to transform our hearts and our minds. We pray for our faithful brother John that you would heal his body from whatever funk has taken it over. Thank you for his preparation and the way he led us yesterday. Father, I pray for anybody in this room as, as we get ready to unpack your word uh, that you would do business in the hearts of those of us that need to have business done in our hearts, which I have a feeling, Lord, is everybody in the room, including and especially me. Thank you for Jesus. <clears throat> we pray this time would be uh, God-honoring and it might be good for our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are in week three of our Summer on the Mount series where we are working through what is easily the most famous sermon ever given, uh, in Matthew chapters five, six, and seven, the Sermon on the Mount. And today, we're gonna be talking about two sections of the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, kind of here's a free tip. Uh, when you study God's word, um, don't just focus in on a single verse, right? That's not the way the Bible was written. The basic unit of thought in the Bible is called a pericope. It's called a paragraph. It's what we know it's a paragraph. That's the basic unit of thought. And so when you're studying God's word, study paragraphs, don't just isolate one verse from itself. That's how we can get into trouble. When you pull a verse out, you pull it out of its context. And, and the reality is, is that uh, while you may be able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me, you're not bench pressing 450 pounds. Uh, if, you've, you know, if you're 90 pounds and have never lifted weights, I don't care that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what Paul means in that, ver in that one verse. You need the paragraph to make sense of that one verse. So we're gonna be looking at two paragraphs this morning uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. We're gonna be looking at Matthew 5, 13 through 20. And so I'm gonna read it to you so you can hear it all together, and then we'll dive in. If you've got your Bible, I'm working out of the ESV translation, and if that matters to you, we'll also have the, the text up on the, uh, the screens behind me. You ready? Okay, let's get some work done. Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything 
except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so where are we? Let me remind you, last week, Todd shared with us about the Beatitudes. And if you remember, the Beatitudes ends, like so it's blessed are the meek, the poor in spirit, all that stuff, and then it ends with, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Okay? And so in those last two Beatitudes, we see this is what the world's response is to a disciple. The world's response to a disciple, someone that says, I'm all in with Jesus, the response is persecution. That's been the case since Jesus ascended to heaven, is that Christians around the world have been persecuted. We happen to live in a country that has had unusual favor in the history of all mankind with rights to our religious freedoms. And so for us, persecution doesn't, hasn't been that bad, but make no mistake about it. If you live a life described in the Beatitudes, you will be persecuted. So that shares with us what the world's response to the disciples. Well, Jesus is now gonna transition in verses 13 to 16, talking about salt and light. He's gonna share with us what is the disciples' response to the world. So the world persecutes, well, how do we respond? We respond by being salt and by being light. That's the Christian's function in the world today. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. Now, I mentioned to you earlier uh, that I got a call 90 minutes ago. Or, you know, it was like 7.30 this morning, which is true. But... I had a head start because I've been personally working through the Sermon on the Mount with about 15 or 16 other men, kind of we scheduled out to do it together as our personal devotional time. So I've actually had about 10 to 12 hours in this passage this week, studying God's word and trying to unpack it. So I had a little bit of a head start. And so the way that I study God's word today is, is I use an app on my iPad and it looks something like this. Uh, and, and, and the reason I do this, I'll explain this in a second, is because I discovered... It's just sort of an aside. Um, 
We should be in God's word, not because, as I'll talk about here lately, because God's gonna be like super impressed that you covered the New Testament in a year, right? We should be in God's word because God's word is what uh, gives us direction. It's his way of communicating with us and teaching us the things that we should matter. What, what should we prioritize? It's all in God's word. That's how I get to know the Heavenly Father. And so I discovered uh, uh, one day that I'd been studying God's word for a while, and my method at the time was I would read it and I would take notes on my computer, typing and it occurred to me one day that I was producing a lot of pages of notes, because I can type pretty quick, without a whole lot of heart engagement. And that began to concern me. Because the last thing God needs is a smarter sinner. The last thing I need is to read a passage and to be held, now I'm accountable for that and not to apply it. I'm just putting myself further under an accountability, right? And so I thought, hey, I need to change up the way I'm doing this so that I can engage not just my mind, but my heart. And so I transitioned to a couple different methods. This is one of them. Um, I also went with this crazy caveman way with like an actual pen and paper, you know, like in a journal. I mean, crazy. And I discovered that when I engage my hands with a pen or a, an iPad pencil, it, it forces me to slow down and ingest more of God's word. Now, the point is, I don't care how you do it. But whenever you're studying God's word, make sure you're engaging your heart. Don't read God's word for God's word's sake. Read God's word so that it can change you, transform your heart, redeem your perspectives, remind you of what's true, remind you of what's not true. So for me, this is the current season. I use an app called, if you're interested, it's called Adobe Draw, um, is what I use, and, and it helps me produce this. And so the first thing I noticed about salt in light is that Jesus says here, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And so that you are in the Greek, that's in the emphatic position. Now you're like, what does that mean? It doesn't mean a whole lot to most of us in 99% of our life. But what it means in this text is, it's Jesus is saying emphatically, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. Okay, now what does salt do? Salt does two things. Now, in the first century, it only did two things. Today, we use it for some things like to defrost ice or to make sure we don't slip on the concrete. We've got some other uses. But in the first century, salt had two uses and only two uses. One, it, was a, uh, it preserved meat. It prevented decay. It saved food. And the other purpose of salt was that it savors. It added flavor to it. So salt prevents decay, right? So if you've got, if you're in the first century and you've just killed a lamb, you've got some lamb chops you're working down and you've got leftovers, if you leave that out, you can't put it in the frigidaire because the frigidaire doesn't exist. So they preserved it with salt. And salt would mean you could still enjoy that meat. It would taste a little different, but you could still enjoy it and it wouldn't go to waste because it was packed in salt. Salt sucked out, it dried out the meat took out all the bacteria and the impurities that, that would have otherwise made you sick as a dog, okay? So salt prevents the spread of decay. And we have to ask ourselves today, how are we doing? The believer, the disciple of Jesus, if you say, I'm all in with Jesus, Jesus says, great, that makes you two things, salt and light. And those two things, as we'll see here in a second, they only have a very limited purpose. You're not taking salt and sprinkling it on your kid's birthday cake. That's terrible. 
You're not taking salt and you're not using it as fertilizer to help your grass grow. That's a bad idea. Salt does two things. It preserves and it enhances flavor. Christian, disciple, that's our job. That's who we are. We are to be people that, that uh, push back the decay of culture. We are to live our lives in such a way, right, as we looked at the Beatitudes, meekness, peacemakers, pure in heart, poor in spirit, such that our lives, when we walk into a room, we begin to prevent decay. I had a chance a couple weeks ago to play golf with some guys, it was a, a, kind of a business trip, and the reality is, when you get on a golf course with a bunch of guys, many that don't know Jesus, the conversation isn't really that edifying. It can de-evolve really quickly. And so my job in that instance is to be salt. It's to prevent that decay, right? It's to make sure that I'm adding to the conversation things that don't accelerate the, the decay, the objectification of women, the uh, crass and impure jokes, all the things that, that might go on on a golf course or in a locker room at a high school or it's your fitness center or in your office break room. Your life, my life, Jesus says, the life of anybody who says, I wanna be your disciple, I wanna be a kingdom of heaven person is to prevent decay. And so we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing at preventing decay? When we see uh, legislation come across uh, the, the board that, that would um, enable uh, an abortion at any stage of a pregnancy, okay, if we're salt, we, we, we begin to work to uh, prevent that decay. You say, no, 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 life matters. Life in the womb matters. The life of the mother matters. The life of the, the, the society where you're pulling out an entire generation of, of, of human beings made in the image of God, that matters. And we stand forth as salt to prevent that decay. When we see our kids or our friends or our spouses or our folks in our community group doing things that are not gonna be leading them towards life, they're gonna lead them towards decay and rancidness. It's our job because we're disciples to be salt in those situations. That's just what we do. Now, our problem, frankly, is we like to hang out in the salt shaker. We like to be together like on Sunday morning. Isn't this great? Got temperature controlled. We got nice seats, we're comfortable. Everybody put on moderately decent clothes. Some of you look better than others. Uh, and so we like to stay in our holy huddle. We like to be salt, but just kind of in the salt shaker. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Salt is meant to go out. And so we come together corporately like this on a Sunday or a Saturday at four to remind each other of what's true about us so that the rest of our week, we're ready to go. We're salt and we're light. If you look up and your entire world is made up of other little salt particles and you ain't got no impurities in your life around you, you know, neighbors, family, coworkers, you're not doing the job of what salt is supposed to be doing. We need to be engaged in the world, in the world, but not of the world, exactly. That's what salt does. So if you're in your little holy huddle and it's super comfortable and you guys all you know, like to be together, I'm gonna let you know, hey, there's a season for that and it's great to remind each other, but get out of the salt shaker. God did not save us for the holy huddle. He saved us to go and teach 
people all that he commanded them to obey. Salt also enhances. Do you enhance? If I went to your place of work, if you went to my place of work, would, would our employers say to you, man, that gal that works for me in, in accounting or marketing or whatever, I don't know what it is about her, but she makes this place better. She's always here on time. She works hard. I've noticed that um, when people are having a difficulty, they seem to gravitate towards her or they seem to gravitate towards him. They just make our place better, right? That's saltiness. That's a good thing. If you go to your office and nobody knows you're a Christian, you've been there for two years and nobody knows you have a faith, are you really being salty? No. Let me answer it for you. No, you're not. You're probably not rolling back the decay and you're not enhancing the area. That's what you're called to do. Did you, I don't know if you guys read your Watermark News this morning about Natalie and her husband. I read it and highlighted a couple things. You know, that she said, she said, hey, when I was younger, I was in church, but not in a relationship with the Lord. She came into the building, but she wasn't a disciple. She was a part of the crowd. I believed about God, but I viewed many religious people as hypocritical and felt the church was selling a pack of lies. Now, there's a decent chance as an unregenerate person, her perspective wasn't spot on, but I bet she ran into some people that weren't being salt and light in her, in her church. And then she says later on, hey, we were engaged and we were living together and God had begun to work in our hearts and we knew, uh, we began to understand what God calls us to in a relationship. God says, let there not be a hint of sexual immorality. Hebrews says the marriage beds be kept pure and they realized we're not doing that. And so you know what they did? They did a salty move. They moved out for the remainder of their engagement. That is being salt. That's rolling back the decay in their relationship. And that's what we need to do. Had a story, uh, if you guys did summit this past year, Todd talked about the way that men are supposed to stand up and step out and speak up. And he shared stories each week about men that were doing that. And there was one story, a guy tells a story where, um, uh, let me find it here. He, he says, hey, I was... Uh, I was with some coworkers from a different office and they came to Dallas for a team meeting. And during one of the breaks, one of the members of the office entered the conference room and started joking about a visiting female coworker. It was at that point that I found myself, quite frankly, without much thought, reminding that coworker that he is married and he should only have eyes for one woman, his wife. The room went silent for a bit and then everyone back to work. No more joking for the remainder of the visit. That's what salt does is it prevents decay. That's what we're supposed to be. But we're not just supposed to be salt uh, that prevents decay, right? We're supposed to be light, Jesus says. You are the light of the world. You and you alone are the light of the world. He would say, uh, a city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Why can't it be hidden? Because it's on a hill, you can't hide something that's on a hill. It's there. You just see it. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Why would you not put it under a basket? Because that defeats the whole purpose of the light. In Dallas, when the sun goes down, you've got street lamps, you've got the glow of your iPhone, you've got your TV light, your clock light. We've got all kinds of lights. If you've ever been to a third world country or Israel in the first century, when the sun goes down, it's dark. And I mean dark, dark. Unless you have a lamp, some oil, a wick, and a light. 
to produce light in the house. If you were to cover that light up, it, guess what? It would be dark. The whole purpose of light is to push out the darkness. So like right now, there's been this entire time a lamp under here, this whole time. And it's been on the whole time. How's that lamp been doing under there? A big bag of nothing. It hasn't enhanced at all. Why? Because it's been covered up. Jesus says, you and you alone are the light of the world to push back darkness. That's your one job is to push back darkness. Another story from that same summit series. Guy shares a story. I went on a sales call last week. I rang the doorbell. I waited a long time before the homeowner, the woman, answered the door. She said she was sorry, but she explained to me that she was on the phone with her mother telling her that she was getting a divorce attorney later that day. I told her that she was married to the exact person God wanted her to be married to. And I invited them to Watermark. And they came, even though they live in an outskirt city that's not necessarily close. And then my wife and I went to lunch with her and we shared with them. And now they've signed up for re-engage at a church in their area. What do you call that? Call it being a light. Guy walks up to a door. He sees darkness. He sees a woman whose marriage has not ended the way that she thought it was gonna end. The happily ever after, the for better or for worse, it's crumbling. And he says, I have the answer. And he brings light into it. That's what disciples of Jesus do. They bring light into a situation. Are you bringing light? Am I bringing light into the world? If I went to your neighbors, your coworkers, and I said, hey, tell me about how, you know, David and Missy are doing neighborhood. What are they gonna say? Would they say, oh, they enhance it? Or who? David and who? Oh, the guys with the big van and the, all those kids? Yeah, oh, yeah, we know them a little bit. Our job is to bring light. So, you'll see here that I, I highlighted this so that, so that. So whenever you see a term like so that or therefore or because, those are important words. Because what Jesus is gonna say here is that whatever went before is there for a reason. And he's gonna tell us what that reason is. He says, we shine our light before others, which is to say that while your faith, while my faith may be personal, it is never private. We don't keep our faith to ourselves for fear of kind of rocking the boat. People are, all, are on a path to hell, to eternal separation from God. And our works, our good works, are to be before them so they can see them. Why? Why? So that the world may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We don't do random acts of kindness. We do acts of kindness because our heart has been informed and transformed by Jesus. I had a chance one time to help a woman who had a flat tire in my parking lot at work, change her tire. And I just said to her, I said, hey, you need to know that I used to be a guy that would not have stopped to help you because it was been a burn on my time. I don't wanna get my pretty soft hands dirty. Uh, and so I said, the only reason I'm stopping to help you is because Jesus has transformed my life. And all of a sudden, I now care about things I used to not care about, like your flat tire. Okay, that's what Jesus does. And it's not because I'm a great guy. 
It's because God has changed me and I want other people to know the father who has transformed my life and taken me from a kingdom of darkness and death and decay into the kingdom of his beloved son and into light. That's why we do things. We don't do random acts of anything. We do purposeful acts of God redeeming works in this world so that people might know our father. So no more random acts of kindness. You give glory to God because the only reason we care about other people is because God transformed our heart. So that's the Christian's function in the world. But that's not all. We have another paragraph to work through. Jesus says he has come to fulfill the law. We're gonna learn about the Messiah's function in the world. Verse 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. So uh, here's my, my version for uh, the next paragraph, Jesus in the Old Testament. This is what I spent on. Again, I had a head start. So I had a 90 minute heads up, but 10 hours of prep work, right? Because I was in God's word. And we should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us, Peter says. And part of the reason that, that I'm able to get up here on short notice, it's not because I'm like super witty or super smart. It's because I've been in God's word all week and I had a head start. Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Why would he even say that? He would say that because all of a sudden, Jesus shows up on the scene. He's not formally trained by any of the rabbis. He doesn't seem to obey at all the oral tradition we talked about in week one. In fact, not only does he not follow the oral tradition, he seems to really not like it. And worse, he hangs out with sinners, tax collectors, and the, and the, and the wreck of the, of the society. Who is this man? Has he come to upturn our entire system? And Jesus says, no, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I know you're asking because I don't look like what the religious system for hundreds of years has looked like, but I've not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. I hear people say regularly, oh, Jesus just did away with the Old Testament. We don't have to, the Old Testament, meh. Jesus did away with it. No, 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 no. Jesus did not do away with the Old Testament. He fulfilled it. In what ways did he fulfill the law and the prophets, right? Because Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, which is his way of saying the whole Old Testament. But there's, but there's also some differences there. The law, the Mosaic law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, your first five books of your Bible, 613 commands of God. Jesus is gonna say, I have come to live the Mosaic law perfectly. I will not stumble. I will follow not only the letter, but the spirit of the law, which is which was missing in the day. And so there will not be a piece of the law that I will not obey perfectly in letter and in spirit. There will be no need for me to go to the temple to make a sacrifice for my sins because there won't be any sins. And I'm gonna fulfill the prophets. All those writings where these men, of, uh, these men Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, uh, Hosea, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, all those guys, they were calling the nation of Israel back to God. And in their writings, in their God-ordained writings, they were pro prophesying, telling about the one who would come to set Israel free and to fulfill all the promises, the Messiah. Jesus says, I'm gonna fulfill the law and I'm gonna fulfill all of the prophets, all the prophecies. And if you look at his life and God's word, you'll see that he hit every one of them. His birth narrative was foretold in Isaiah 7, 4. 
Isaiah 9, 6, Micah 5, 2, his death narrative in Zechariah 9, 9, 12, 10, Psalm 22, Isaiah 56, Isaiah 53. All these things that wrote about the Messiah, Jesus fulfilled them all. He wasn't coming to get rid of it. He was saying, I am the culmination of everything that's been written. He fulfilled the law in his body on the cross. What do I mean by that? The Jews, under the Mosaic system, had to go before and present sacrifices for their sins regularly. It was a reminder to them that they could not earn their way to God. It was always by faith. And God said, hey, for you to continue to be in my presence, there's a sacrificial system that God instituted over and over and over again because the sin kept continuing. And Jesus comes and he lives 33 years, a perfect life, a sinless life. And he goes to the cross And on that cross, the wrath of God, the justice of God that needed to be satisfied because the wages of sin is death, Paul says in Romans. It's been that way since Genesis 3, and it's that way all the way through. The wages of sin, what we earn from our sin is death. And Jesus says, hey, I'm gonna go to the cross. And in the cross, my perfection my perfect obedience to the law, my fulfillment of all the prophecies is going to satisfy once and for all the requirements of God and the wrath of God that was due us because of our sin, not just the, the sin we do, but the sin in our, the imputed sin in our heart that we never seek God apart from his uh, inflection in our heart. Hebrews 10.4 reminds us that these sacrifices, the writer talks about these Old Testament sacrifices, they were a reminder of sins every year because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Bulls and goats can't take away sins. They just allow the nation to continue to come before God. What can take away sins? A spotless lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And so in his death on the cross, the law, the prophets were all fulfilled in Jesus. So Jesus is not anti-Old Testament. We should not be anti-Old Testament people. Your Bible is Genesis to Revelation, all of it. And let me just say kind of as gently as I can, if you have a problem with Leviticus, the problem is not with Leviticus. Problems with, with us. If you get into Jeremiah, you're like, what in the world? The problem's not with Jeremiah. Because all scripture, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. So study your Bible. Your New Testament won't make sense without your Old Testament. And your Old Testament will make a whole lot more sense with your New Testament. Amen? Jesus says, therefore, whoever relaxes the law and uh, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. See, I, I circled this or squared this, therefore. It's another key word. Therefores are important words in Bible. So in light of da-da-da-da-da-da, therefore do this. Romans 1 to 11, a lot of doctrine, Romans 12, 1. Therefore, in light of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. 
Whoever relaxes one of these commandments, how were the Pharisees relaxing the commandments of God? Good question. I'll tell you. They were relaxing them because they were, they stripped out the heart intent of the law. Okay? They would say, you've got the law and all this other oral tradition. We talked about that in week one. And they said, if you just do this, you'll be okay. And in saying, in making God's law a checklist of things to do, rather than uh, an expression of a grateful heart, they have relaxed the law. And we're going to spend the next several weeks, you're going to see right after this, after this paragraph, Jesus is going to say, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not commit murder. You have heard it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus is going to be talking about showing examples of what it means that they relax the law. So come back next week, okay? And so suffice it to say, how do we relax the law here today? What does that look like for us? Well, I'll tell you. We relax the law. If, if I were to say to you, listen, if you don't read your Bible every day this next week, God's gonna be really pissed at you. That's relaxing the law. If I say to you, hey, I noticed you've not been here two of the last six weeks and I'm keeping track and you, I put on you a burden that you need to do something, I'm relaxing the law. And what does Jesus say about that? That guy is gonna be least in the kingdom of heaven, which is another way of saying you ain't getting in, okay? Now, should you read your Bible? Yes, it's God's word. It'll help you. It gives you direction. You should absolutely read your God's word, but not as some way to appease an, a grumpy deity. God's not mad at you. He wants you to know him. It's a relationship. And God's word is one of the primary mechanisms by which we get to know our father. So read God's word, but don't think that in reading it, he's gonna love you more because God has demonstrated his love for you already, Romans tells us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That question's been answered. Once and for all on the cross. Does God love you? Yes. How do I know? Because he sent his son to die on the cross for you. His son who never did anything in uh, violation of the scriptures. That question has been answered. But if you want to know God, he's given you his book. So get into it. He goes on to say, for I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me just tell you something. If you were a first century Jew and you heard Jesus say that my righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees or I won't get in, man, the wind just left your sails. Why? Because the Pharisees, those were the professionals. They gave their whole life to the law. It was all they did, they ate, slept, drank, dental flossed, the law. That's all they did. And you're telling me if I can't, if I don't exceed that, I don't get in? Jesus says yes. Why? Because Jesus is not talking about the false righteousness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as you would read the rest of the gospel, they get railed all, all the time because their righteousness was one of false piety. It wasn't a true righteousness, which is why in Luke 18, I think Todd read this last week, Jesus told a parable. It says, he told this parable to some who trusted that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Who do you think those some were? The Pharisees. And might be some of us in here today. 
Jesus says, two men went up in the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, man, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this sorry piece tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get, and on and on. And Jesus just says, hey, that's not righteousness. Do you know that the Old Testament did not require the Jews to fast twice a week? It's not in there. But it was because of the Pharisees. See, Jesus is not saying you need to have more of what the Pharisees have. He's saying you need to have greater righteousness, righteousness of a different kind. It's a different flavor of ice cream altogether. They're drinking, I mean, eating like cherry ice cream. Nastiness. <laughs> Jesus says, no, no, this is cookie two-step. It's the righteousness of the heart. It's greater, not in, uh, not in quantity, but in quality. It's a righteousness that says, hey, the intent matters. That parable I just read, he says, I don't, I'm not an adulterer. Well, Jesus, in about two weeks, we're gonna learn, redefines, actually, I take that back. He doesn't redefine it. He properly defines what it means to be an adulterer. And we learned that this, these Pharisees of the day had no idea what righteousness was. That's what he means when he says, your righteousness must exceed them. Because if your righteousness doesn't exceed them, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness is one of the heart, unless you're poor in spirit, meek, peacemaker, all those things we talked about last week in the Beatitudes. It starts with um, a poverty in your spirit that says, I'm not capable of keeping the law. I'm not capable of um, giving you a glass of water with entirely pure motives. Like there's always something in it for me. There's always a piece of it. Man, well, how's this gonna, they're gonna think better of me. <clears throat> right? My righteousness exceeds it when it comes from my heart. God, um, what is the heart of what it means to don't murder? It's all about anger. What does it mean to not commit adultery? It's about lust. It's about so much more than the Pharisees were giving it credit for. That's why he says your righteousness needs to exceed it. We do see this term kingdom of heaven a lot. You see it three times here in this particular passage. Matthew is the only writer in the entire Bible that uses this phrase. There's a trivial pursuit question for you. He uses it 32 times. And when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, there's a couple of different ways we should think about that. One, we should think about the kingdom of heaven as God's ultimate and complete sovereignty over his world. This is God's world. He created it. He's gonna be the one to wrap it up someday. We also talk about, and this is the, more the primary usage right now, is God's rule and his reign in the life of a disciple. And we come to embrace God's rule and his reign when we start by saying, I am poor in spirit. And I need you, Father, to help me be the kind of man you want me to be. It also has with it this idea of God's future plan when his will will completely and perfectly be on earth as it is in heaven. That's the kingdom of heaven. And it starts, your entrance into the kingdom of heaven starts not by what you do, not by how much you fast, 
not by how much you tithe, not by your perfect attendance award, not by any of that nonsense. It starts by acknowledging, God, your rule and your reign in my life is what I need. And apart from that, I have nothing to offer you. God's kingdom of heaven is both now in us and it's to come in its fullness. And a kingdom of heaven person always has a reformed life, which is what we talked about in week one. If you know Jesus, if you say, I'm a disciple, and there's no salt, and there's no light, I want to encourage you. You might want to check your faith. Because just because you show up in here, just because you go to equip disciple, just because you come to Summit, just because you come to Shoreline, that does not make you a disciple. That just makes you a guy that goes to church, Summit, equip disciple. That's it. That's all it makes you. You want to be a kingdom of heaven person? You acknowledge your need for a savior. And out of that, you begin to grow. And the good news is, you may have just come to know the kindness of God yesterday. You may be a day one believer and you may, all you may have is a Bic lighter, just this little bitty flame. And God says, guess what? A Bic lighter provides light. You may have been walking with Jesus for 50 years and you may be a bonfire. But both of them are doing what God is calling them to do. And I hope that if you're a day one believer, over the decades that you walk with Jesus, you would turn from that little, little tiny flame into a roaring fire that consumes other people with the light of God. You may be just like a little small snack pack of salt, you know, one of the kinds you get from Chick-fil-A, you know, and you're like, hey, I'm a believer, but it's just this itty bitty pack of salt. God says, that's okay. Use your salt, little as it may be today, and I'll grow it. You may end up being as salty as the Dead Sea. That's all it is, is salt. But you gotta start walking with Jesus. You gotta raise your hand and say, I can't do it. You need to get with other believers who can encourage you and remind you, not to make God like you, because that's how we grow. Dive into community. Confess your sins to one another. Yeah, I know community's hard. I've been in community for 20 years here. Of course it's hard. It's not easy to be in community with me either. I can be a jerk from time to time, like every third day. But that's how we grow, it's that sharpening. You wanna be a bonfire? You wanna be the Dead Sea kind of salt? Get around God's people, get in God's word, equip yourself, remind yourself you can't obey the Sermon on the Mount. You need Jesus every day. That's the moment you put your foot on the ground out of your bed, God. I will screw this day up by the time my coffee is done if you don't help me to be your man today in this world. This world needs salt and it needs light. That is what you've saved me for. Help me to be your man today. Help me to be your woman today. Your husband, your mother, your, your child, your employer, coworker. And see what God does. Whew, so much more. But we're out of time. So let's pray. Father, what a gift, what a gift your word is to our hearts. Thank you for um, how just once again you have reminded us of what you have saved us to be, to be salt and to be light. And I pray, Father, for my own wicked, deceitful heart. Oh, I am prone to wander 
the thoughts and the intentions that run across my brain every single day that need to be reformed and brought to you daily. I pray that for our body, that we would continually come before you and that you would cleanse us. You would make us more salty. You would make our light shine brighter that others may see our good works and give glory to you. I pray that this week, as we leverage our lives, as we are salt to the world, as we are light to the world, there might be this week people who come to know the kindness and the mercy of you and your son, and they might be born again. They might enter into the kingdom of heaven for the first time and that you might begin to use them to transform this world. God, we have much work to do and we need you to do every bit of it. And we know that you will use us for your glory, for our good, and for the transformation of this world. And Father, I pray if there is anybody today who is not light, who is not salt because they don't know you, would you quicken their heart today? Would you remind them that you love them and that you're not a checklist God? You don't want them to do, do, do to earn salvation. You want them to come empty-handed and that from that, you will equip them to go do. Thank you for your son who fulfilled the law in a way that we would never, ever be able to fulfill. What a gift, what a gift. In Jesus' name, amen.